Welcome to the Explore podcast from EF Pro Cycling. This week, we have a very special episode in honor of Women's History Month. EF Education, TIBCO SVB rider Lizzie Banks and General Manager Rachel Hederman are trailblazers in women's cycling and have advanced our sport both quietly behind the scenes and on the world stage. Rachel Hederman has done everything there is to do in cycling. She left her career in engineering to follow her dream of professional cycling, which took her to the world's biggest races, including the Olympics, as part of Team GB. She even spent a few seasons as a rider on our team. In 2014, Rachel made history as the first female director at a men's world tour event. Last year, she led our team into the world tour as general manager. Lizzie Banks is a current rider on our team. She left her medical studies shortly before graduation in order to pursue her cycling career and we are so glad she did. Winner of multiple stages at the Giro, she's one of the most exciting riders in the World Tour Peloton. She's brought her passion for cycling to our team and has used her voice to advocate for increased coverage and equity in the sport. So join us on this ride as we explore the world of cycling together. My name is Catherine Ezra, and this is the Explore Podcast. So just jumping right in, Rachel, Lizzie, what was women cycling when you first started riding bikes? Rachel, do you want to start us off? I guess when I first started riding, I I didn't really know there was such a thing as women cycling, if that makes sense. You know, I started riding at university just with the, the local cycling club. I joined a cycling club because there was a local time trial series and you needed two women to be able to enter it. And there was one woman within the the club that wanted to ride, and I think I was the only other, the only other female under probably the age of sixty who was willing to ride. So, so I I ended up starting racing time trials because you know I was one of the only two women in the club that were willing to race. So I didn't really know much about the scene as it was then. Then I guess I started racing locally within the um, the UK, or not, I guess nationally within the UK, but it was. Yeah, it, it, I still very much describe it as racing with the, the spectators being kind of one man and his dog and maybe a few sheep and, and a couple of parents. And that was even at the national level. So a very different kind of scene to, to what it is now with the you know hundreds, thousands of spectators at some races. Definitely a much smaller affair. I'd say it wasn't that dissimilar when I started racing, to be honest. I started racing in 2015 and I was thinking on my ride today about you know, how much progression there's been since then. And I was very much a hobby cyclist in 2015, somebody who just went to the races on the weekend. I didn't understand what training was. I just sort of was doing it totally for fun. And I only really started to get immersed in the world of cycling and women's cycling in 2016. That's when I first started following the races. And I loved following the races, but I remember how difficult and frustrating it was. And I was just absolutely captivated by the Giro Rosa. And I thought, you know, if I ever, if I can ever win a race, this is the race that I want to win. But it was so difficult to follow. You couldn't find the results online anywhere. You know, for the rest of the day, it was often not until the next day that you could even find the results of the previous day. And it was so, so difficult to watch it. And for the women's world tour races, there would be sort of a five minute highlights video on YouTube that would come out a week later or something. And so it was very difficult 
to watch and you had to be really invested in the sport and really know, you know, where to go to these obscure places online, which links to follow, which people to follow to find which links in order to be able to follow some of the top races in the world and, you know, very good at following races on Twitter and things like that. And so now, you know, in the space of six years, the access to women's cycling has changed so much. It is so much easier to access the top level of races and to watch them. But we still have such a way to go. You know, we've got Trofeo Alfredo Binder this Sunday, which is the oldest race in women's cycling or something like that. You know, it's a very, very old race. And we're three days out from the race and we don't have a start list yet. So how are we supposed to, how are we as fans, rather than just as bike riders, supposed to invest in that race if we're three days out and we can't even create any media hype around it? So there's a huge amount that has changed in the last six, seven years since I started riding, but we've definitely still got a way to go. You know, there's Milan San Remo on Sunday, which I guess is one of the biggest races in men's cycling and there's so much hype around that and we have this amazing beautiful race in Italy the day after which is such a diverse race so exciting so many different types of riders could win that race in a way it's quite similar to Strada Bianca in that we just don't know what the outcome is going to be and we're not able to create that hype because we don't even know who's going to start it yet. Given that Racing, certainly at a professional level, Rachel, when you started and, and Lizzie, there was a professional peloton when you really got your start a few years ago. But given that it wasn't necessarily a visible thing, how was it then that this has become your careers? You've both spent the last several years working in this sport that wasn't necessarily something that was obvious to become a job. How did that happen? I mean, for me, it was it was about the national team and the, the Olympics. I came into cycling from another career. I was an engineer and had the opportunity to race with the national team. And it was more a case of following a dream, following a hobby. I didn't particularly, when I started, think of it as a career. And honestly, back in 2001, it it wasn't a viable career in the same way it is now. Like I was able to do it because I'd been working as an engineer and saved up money and was, you know, was able to kind of effectively live off savings. And so... It wasn't a career as such. It was a it was a dream. I'd always been into sports as a kid, you know, all sorts of different sports. And in cycling, I found one that I actually could do at a, like a world level. And so I, I followed that. But I, I think, yeah, like I say, at the, at the time, it, it wouldn't have been something that you would class as a career. And honestly, when I stopped working, you know, I talked to my boss and he said he would give me a year off and hold my job open for a year so that I can go and be a cyclist for the GB national team for a year, which was, yeah, for sure, fulfilling a dream. And so when I when I stopped working as an engineer, it was with the idea that, yeah, maybe I'd get to ride for, for the British national team for a year, not expecting that, you know, 20-something years later, I'd still actually be involved within cycling and it would have become a career. I think, you know, I mean, I, I resonate with a lot of things you were saying, Rachel, about, you know, I, d- I still didn't think it would be a viable career when I started. And, and you know, it was you that gave me my first professional contract. And I was at medical school and everybody said to me, you know, most people were saying, oh, you should just carry on with medicine. It's such a good career, blah, blah, blah. I went to the deans of the medical school because I had to go to two different deans in order to be able to leave the course. And they said, well, will you be able to make a living out of this? And I said, no. And I honestly thought, I thought if I get to the point where I'm as good as Lizzie Dignan, maybe I'll earn about £30,000 and I'll be able to actually support myself. But I knew that I wouldn't be able to earn a living. 
I was pretty convinced that my first contract was going to be a zero dollar contract. And it wasn't. It was it was ten thousand dollars. And it's funny because now in the Women's World Tour in 2023, the minimum salary for an employed rider is fifty two thousand euros and thirty two thousand for a self-employed rider. And that's rising again next year. So it's amazing now because when you've got, you know, neo pros or, you know, youngsters coming into the sport, they have no idea of what people like, you know, me or, you know, Rachel, obviously very different a long, longer time ago, you know, have been through in order to get there, you know, scraping by, not being able to survive. And it's amazing that for these women, just coming in and earning a salary for them is is completely normal. It's such a huge step change. And everything seems to be going very quickly and positively in the right direction. And despite a number of voices saying that the progression was too fast and women's cycling wouldn't be able to sustain this, actually more and more teams are coming in. And there's almost, there's not enough riders because so many teams want to come in. So it does seem to be sustainable at the moment. And um, yeah, it's just amazing to see that difference. Well, Lizzie, when you first started to think about leaving medical school, and like you said, you had to speak with all these deans and go through all these steps to to even leave your course. Did you feel like you generally had support to leave sort of this defined path of, oh, I'm going to become a doctor to I'm going to be a professional athlete? <laughs> Did you feel like you had much support in doing that? Yes and no. It was quite a big split, I would say. There were there was the camp that thought I was doing the wrong thing. And then there was the camp that was very supportive of what I was doing. And was saying, I don't know, I don't know how you're going to balance both. And I guess there was a number of factors. I'd begun to fall out of love with with medicine. But the other factor was that I was 27, 27, I think, and only getting older. And I can go back to medical school if I want to in the future and do the course again and go and be a doctor, but I was never going to get this opportunity to be a professional athlete again. And I actually quit my course before I had a professional contract. I quit my course. I finished my master's degree. And then about three weeks later, Rachel emailed me back with the offer of a contract or actually no, not even the offer of a contract saying, do you want to have a chat? It all worked out in the end. But like I said, you know, it wasn't, it was a number of years before I could then actually support myself, you know, and like, five more years before I could actually support myself by being a professional cyclist with the income of, of a professional cyclist. And so, so yeah, now for those, for those young women coming in and just going straight into a salary where they're actually able to support themselves and not knowing anything else, it's amazing, really. It's just a world away from, it's a world away from when Rachel or I started cycling. And yeah, the financial situation and the financial security of when we started, well, financial insecurity, really, of when we started. Rachel, tell us a little bit about your journey in cycling, because you started as a rider, then you became a DS, now you're a general manager. I mean, this is... This is some, these are some big steps you've taken and, and you've made a lifelong career in this sport. How has that happened? <laughs> How has that gone? What's that been like? <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I, like, uh, like I said before, when I first kind of became a cyclist, as it were, it was, you know, my, I guess, thoughts going into it were that I was going to take a, a year off of work and get to, you know, travel the world and, and be a cyclist for a year. And then that, that year turned into, in the end, nine years, you know, and, and getting to travel all over the world and race in a ton of amazing races. And then 
I didn't start riding full time until I was 27. So I was, you know, significantly older than a lot of riders are when I started. And then like nine years later, I got to the point where I was, I was getting older and slower and, and racing wasn't so much fun anymore because I, I knew exactly what I should be doing in races, but just was no longer capable of it. And I'd always said, I'm going to keep doing this until it's not fun anymore. And it had got to the point where it wasn't, wasn't as much fun anymore. Um, and that happened to coincide with the, the team that I was riding for. The DS was leaving to go back to Jamaica and on one car ride she she said to me you know what you, you make a good ds and the seed had been planted a couple of years previously when i was guest riding for a team uh, it was actually emma pooley that that planted that seed of like have you ever thought of being a director so yeah things just fell into place and i moved from being a being a rider to being a ds uh, and did that for 11 years i think in total in, in various different teams you don't look old enough <laughs> oh, <laughs> then five years ago I had my little one and actually continued DSing for another another three years so yeah for the first first three years of Killian's life he spent most of his life going to bike races he went to his his first bike race at, at three weeks old and I you know combined the DSing that I knew how to do with being a mother which I was utterly clueless at but managed to make it work and yeah, just kind of took him along for the ride. But then I, I kind of got to the point of realizing that, yeah, at some point he needed to go to school and not just hang out at bike races his whole time. So I needed to settle down and actually live at home and not, you know, not be traveling around all over the place. And that coincided with the, with the team making the jump up to world tour. And previously we'd been very much Linda as the, as the owner and, and by default general manager. And then, me as the DS, Adrian as a mechanic. We had one or two Swannies, but that was that was kind of it. And yeah, as the team grew, the position for a general manager kind of came about. Um, and I, you know, talked to Linda and, and thought that that would that would work well for both of us. It's like I, you know, I knew the team, I knew how things worked well enough to step into that role. And for me, it worked well because it was a job that I could continue doing, like stay in the sport, stay within the team but I could actually do the job from home rather than having to be on the road full time. Well, going back to your days as a DS, because you were a DS on a men's team and there are very few female DSs in the women's side of the sport, but even fewer, I believe, on the men's side. What was that experience like? Yeah, I mean, it was. there were some ways in which it was very different to, to DSing for the women and some ways in which it was very similar. I mean, at the end of the day, it's still a bike race. Riders are still riders. There, there are definitely, you know, differences between the races and between the athletes. But at, at the end of the day, there was an awful lot of it that was still transferable and still having to do, you know, exactly the same things for working with the, the men's team as with the women's team. You know, the riders still, there's the logistics side of it is still the same. You know, the riders still need to get from home to the race. You've, st- you've got mechanics and swannies are the same. It was on the men's team, just a slightly bigger scale. Like most, there were a couple of races I did where I was the only DS uh, and quite a lot I did where I was the second DS, which, you know, in the, in the women's side of things at the time didn't exist. There were, there were no races where we had two team cars. It was just one DS. Even now two team cars still isn't allowed in races. You know, it's getting to the point where they're going to have to change that rule because we saw in the Tour de France farm last year that, there were situations where it was desperately needed that we had two team cars and races, but it's still 
you know, it's still one of those big differences that we don't, you know, we're not actually allowed two team cars. Yeah, I mean, it's a change that's come in for this year that at certain races, two team cars are going to be allowed. But it, yeah, it is. It's a limited number of races, and it's you know that's challenging as a as a DS is to quite where you are with a with the car when you when there's only one of you. Yeah, so I mean, that's the that was probably one of the, I guess one of the bigger differences with the you know with the women's race versus men's race and the the men's side of things. The races were. I guess being in the car itself was a l- little bit different. Just the way that the the way the races the races worked, and the to some extent how busy the car was. Um, I r- remember being in the car for for Milan San Remo, and you wouldn't believe that for seven hours there are riders in the convoy for the entire of the seven hours. It's like how does this happen? You know, that there's just continually riders coming back and forwards through the convoy, and partly because it was a horrible day. It poured with rain, and there may may even have been a bit of snow that day so it was a you know it was a cold nasty day so there was a lot of coming back to the car changing clothes and getting rain jackets dropping off rain jackets etc which wasn't something and I still I think to some extent still isn't something you see so much in the women's races just because the women's races are shorter and there's less time for that to happen there's less kind of lulls at the beginning of the race that the races can tend to be more full on from the start so nobody really wants to go back to the car because the right from the start there's continual fighting to get to the front yeah the intensity of the race means that you know if it's raining that actually you're not that likely to wear a rain jacket anyway because you're probably going to be going full gas from the gun so you know it's only only some races where there's actually a sort of a lull at the beginning usually it's just full gas from the start till the end so yeah it makes our races more exciting and men's races are definitely trying to replicate that as they get shorter they're saying oh wow this is so exciting this new type of men's races and we're just saying like hey this is just women's cycling it's been like this for years so if you want to watch exciting races you can just watch us well yes that brings me to the next question of sort of where is women's racing now because now that for example in the men's peloton they're seeing some shorter stages some shorter races and people are saying how exciting that is talk a little bit about the state of women's racing today and the ways in which it's it's a forefront it's at the vanguard of the sport i'm not sure that the the actual style of racing and the way that the women's races play out has changed a huge amount i mean there is there's you know there's definitely improvements there's that i think it's the number of women starting cycling and starting racing is growing, which means that there's, you know, that the base is, is higher. So you have more, more good and more professional riders. But the the style of the racing, I don't think has changed that much. The big, big, big difference is that now people get to watch it. You know, I, and I think that's the biggest thing is that people now can see it and see that, yeah, the women's racing is exciting. Whereas previously it just like lizzie talked about at the beginning that it it just wasn't possible to watch women's races i think the for most of my my racing career the the races you could watch were world championships olympic games commonwealth games and almost nothing else was actually shown on tv yeah i agree with you and i think the thing that we need to be careful of is not you know there's there's often quite a lot of push to to replicate what's happening in the men's side of the sport in order to reach for equality. But we don't necessarily want to replicate something that we don't want to be. And it's interesting as the men's races become shorter, become more dynamic, become more like women's cycling races, then sometimes there's this push for women's races to become longer and more like men's races. And actually, that's not what we want to be doing at all, because 
generally, as the races get longer, they get less aggressive, less exciting. You know, we saw in stage five of the Tour de France Femme last year, there was an absolute huge crash. And that was just because it was a very long stage. It was the longest stage of the race. There was a breakaway up the road, which meant that behind it was very much like tra-la-la, not much going on, soft pedaling. And that's when crash is happening. It's not, it's not actually fun to watch. And one interesting change to, to stage races six days and more this year is that we can have seven riders in the race. And I actually think that that's a backward step because I think that the chances of stronger teams becoming stronger and more controlling is higher if we if we do that in women's cycling. And that's what is so great about women's cycling is that it's it's chaotic. You never know what's going to happen. Everybody wants to attack. And, uh, you know, in the old days when there was so much, so much competition for a contract that actually gave you enough money to live on, people would do, you know, they would just do absolutely anything to get that result. And it was crazy being in the races, but it made them also incredibly exciting. So there, there are things that are making, you know, have the potential to make women's racing less exciting, exciting, and we need to be careful about those things. It's also interesting that I actually think that the increase in salaries, which is obviously only a good thing, has changed women's cycling a bit because of that lack of kind of the do or die aspect of it, you know, really needing to get your own result. People are more satisfied with their place and team role. So sometimes it makes the, the tactics a bit more, I don't know how to explain it, it's sort of a bit, a bit more normal um, <laughs> rather than girls just sort of attacking anywhere to get any result that they can. And I actually wonder if the increase in salaries is also going to make races slightly less exciting but another thing that it will do or is already doing is making it much more even across the board you know there is there's so much more depth in every aspect of the women's peloton there are so many more climbers who can compete with Annemiek van Vluten there are so many more sprinters who can compete with Lorena Vibas so all of these races you never know what's going to happen because the salaries have meant that the depth in the sport is just increasing more and more because there are so many more women who are able to live like a professional. And now, Catherine, I can't even remember what you asked because I've gone off on a complete tangent. Um. <laughs> All in good conversation. <laughs> well, but you did, You, I mean, you definitely mentioned a few things. Um, and one of the things you mentioned was how women's cycling doesn't need to try to replicate men's cycling. And I definitely agree with that. And I, I do think it's important, like you've mentioned, that the salaries on the women's side have increased. But also looking at the men's side, talking about the men's calendar, for example, now there's the Tour de France Femme, now that that's been revived. And that was such a undeniably massive hit, huge success last summer. And that was wonderful. And that also came at the end of, you know, several years of pushing for La Course to become more than just a one day, more than just a three day for it to become a proper stage race. But looking at, at the men's calendar, I mean, there are so many races and when, where people are saying, oh, the women need this race. Oh, the women need that race. What are your thoughts then on Lizzie and Rachel both? What are your thoughts on looking at the men's calendar as a source of inspiration, as a jump off point, as opposed to saying, okay, we need to have a women's ball in San Remo, maybe saying, okay, well, we can do something that brings the same excitement, but it doesn't need to look exactly like that. So what are your thoughts at looking at the men's calendar? Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, it's just the, the way that the women's calendar has increased in number of race days is actually unsustainable as it is because 
currently the rules say that the women's world tour teams don't have to attend every single women's world tour race and if they did say that you had to do that it simply wouldn't be possible for the women's teams to do it the maximum team size is 16 riders and already after the spring classics you have riders out with injury broken bones you know and it's simply not possible to to go to all the races with the number of riders that we have in the rosters and if you increase the number of riders in the rosters then you also have to increase team budget so you need to do that carefully and sustainably and of course we want big races like you know, the women's Milan San Remo, but then that falls on the same weekend as Trofeo Alfredo Binder, which, as I was saying earlier, is one of the oldest races in the world. So you have to be really careful not to lose these races that hold, you know, a very prestigious spot in women's cycling history and races that we absolutely love, races that perhaps need to step up their game, but races that are very important in our sport. But as as lots of different race organisers see the value in women's cycling, they are pushing to get their races into, into the sport as well. Of course, last year we had the first women's Tour de France of the new generation, uh, the first women's Tour de Romandie. The Vuelta is now you know, massively stepping up and even the Giro is being taken over by RCS next year and who knows what that's going to mean. And it's very, very difficult. I mean... Yeah, I don't know about from your point of view, Rachel, but it's very difficult. I know you guys have a hell of a job trying to work out the calendar in the off season and work out which races to do. And, you know, if you were mandated to do all the women's world tour races, I mean, what would you do? Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's challenging. And I think the push and the growth is is huge and it's positive. But it, like you said, it, it also needs to be sustainable. And, you know, it, it there's definitely... Parts of it where it, are we trying to run too fast? You know, are we trying to to achieve, you know, I mean, men's cycling wasn't developed in three years. It's been going for whatever, 100 years. So, you know, I'm not suggesting we take 100 years to get to where the men are now, but we can't try and develop things so fast that it becomes unsustainable. I think to to get back to your, your question, Catherine, about the, you know, some of the, the bigger races. I mean, realistically, that there is only one Tour de France and it is, for the men, it, it's it's the race that outside of the cycling world, people have heard of. You know, if you ask the average punter in the street what bike racing is, the Tour de France is probably the one thing that they will, you know, they will have heard of. So I think that the, the Tour de France is different to any other races. So I think having a, a women's Tour de France was was hugely important having a women's all you know all the the other big races is while still important not as critical as as it was to have a women's tour de france so i i think would it be good to have a women's milan san remo and a you know a, a women's lombardia maybe but i don't think it's no other races are going to create the kind of step change that the women's tour de france did and so I think it's almost on a race by race basis. It needs to be looked at whether it makes sense or not. You know, like Lizzie said, you don't want to put big races on the calendar that that shut out the races that have supported women's cycling and have been great races for the women's peloton for so many years. Um, it would be a shame to see those races kind of not trampled over by bigger races, but you don't want the the new races to be the new shiny thing and and lose sight of the races that have been consistently there and consistently supporting the you know supporting women's cycling and been one of the building blocks of women's cycling for so many years 
I agree. And I think until we're in a place where women's world tour teams are able to run double programs sustainably, which means more sponsorship money, even more sponsorship money. And obviously there's already been a huge increase in the last three, four years, massive you know, massive, massive increase in sponsorship money and the increase in in roster numbers, you know, probably up to 20, realistically. And that then means an increase in staff numbers as well. You know, it's not just rider numbers. There's everything else that goes with it. There's all of the logistical aspects about that and, of course, the financial side. And I think until you have all of that in place, adding races, you know, okay, I'm going to use Milan San Remo as an example, and I don't just mean the one race. I just mean adding races continually like that and women's teams being able to go to them all I don't think that's going to be possible for a while and that you know that might be three years you know it's amazing what's happened within three years we might see another you know we might see that growth within another three years which really isn't very long to wait but we need to have everything else in place otherwise we're going to see women's teams going to these big races with five riders four riders sometimes and we don't want to see that we want to see all the best riders at those races and yeah, it's just it just takes a little bit of time and we need to be a little bit patient. So what would a sustainable pace for the development of women's cycling look like? Because there's so many different things in play. There's money, there's racing calendars, there's cyclists who are at the level to compete at world tour and, and high levels. What would a sustainable path or sustainable rate of cycling development look like? I don't think you can put a number on that. I mean, it, 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 there are too many factors to come into play. You know, a lot of it is money, but you have to have the bodies, you know, you have to have the personnel on the ground and it takes time to build that talent and develop that talent. And there's a lot of, there's a hell of a lot of young talent coming through now because of the number of world, women's world tour teams and continental teams increasing and having to fill those gaps. Um, so we've got these younger riders coming through and there is there is the talent there, but it needs building up. And we don't want to have all of these young riders that we have to, you know, throw into 65 races a year and break them because it's incredibly demanding on your body. It's incredibly demanding mentally as well. And it's so much better to to go in, start with two, you know, point two races, then point one, then point pro, then women's world tour and build up slowly, then just go straight into world tour races, get absolutely demoralized and then, you know, really get broken mentally as well as physically. And we just don't want to do that. So I don't think it's possible to put a timestamp on it and say it's going to take X number of years because it will depend on money coming in as well as riders coming through. So it's just it's just something that that I'm sure will continue to naturally evolve, but we can't we cannot push it because there has already been so much development and so much, you know, positive increase in the kind of level of women's cycling and everything around that in the last few years already. We've talked a little bit about the calendar and we've also mentioned earlier how women's world tour teams are not required to go to every single women's world tour race. So Rachel, when you're looking at the season, when you're planning out what races the team's going to go to, what do you take into account? How do you make that decision? Because there's obviously logistics, there's riders can only race, you know, X number of days realistically, and and soon points is going to become an issue. So how do you determine what the team's schedule is going to be? I mean, it's a, I wouldn't say long process, but a, a process that involves kind of the whole of the management team. And we look at trying to create a calendar that works for the team and, and with all the factors that go into that. Yeah, there's the logistics go into it. But you start off with which are the best races for us. And that could be, you know, part of it is which are the 
the biggest races in terms of the media, which are the, you know, what are the important races for our sponsors and what are the races that best suit the riders that we have on the team? We look at the strengths of the different riders that we have and, you know, match our race calendar to suit the strengths of the riders that, you know, that we have. If we had predominantly climbers available at a, you know, at a certain time in the, in the calendar, then we would look for races that suited, you know, suited those riders. It's a kind of giant game of, almost a giant game of Tetris. You're trying to figure out like which, uh, a schedule that makes sense for each, you know, each rider on the team and match that with a, with an overall calendar. And you do a first pass at it and then realize that, okay, no, we, you know, there's a pan flat race and we only have climbers available. So no, that doesn't make sense. Okay. We rejig it. We, you know, shuffle things around a bit, but you, like I say, it is a, a giant, giant game of Tetris trying to fit everything in of, of making a, a schedule that makes sense for everybody and taking all the, you know, all the different requirements, um, different factors into account. So the, you know, the strengths of our riders, the schedule that makes sense for them, the needs of our sponsors, you know, when other races that are particularly important to them, other races that are big races within the media, things like that. So it's, it's a whole host of different factors that come up with all that go into coming up with, with what our schedule will be. And then also having the ability to be flexible because there are, you know, there are races that look like they're going to be on the schedule and then may get cancelled or there are new races that come up. Not very often new races that, that suddenly appear that weren't on the schedule to start with, but it does happen. And if those are races that are really good ones for your team, then it's, you, you have to start looking at, okay, can we add these races in now? Looking at your cycling careers, I mean, what are some of the different points at which you've kind of looked around and said, wow, things are things are going in a great direction, or I'm really excited to see some of these changes that are happening? What were some of those key moments? Actually, I mean, for me, it was a couple of weeks ago when I was speaking to Zoe Baxter, and it just, you know, it really struck it struck me and it really hit home how a first year professional will never, never see those barriers or a first year professional on the world tour will never see those financial barriers that I saw and that Rachel saw and that, so you know, all of the women before us saw. And they simply don't understand <laughs> that not having a salary was normal and not that it was good or okay, but that was normal. And it was amazing. Actually, it was really amazing to kind of to speak to her. And yeah, just it kind of felt like, oh, you know what? <laughs> we've bloody done it. <laughs> like we've done it. There's been a lot of hard work. You know, I can't say that I put in that much hard work because there were so many years before me. But, you know, definitely my generation also fought, fought hard for it. And we fought so hard and struggled so much. And I simply wouldn't have been able to do this without the support of my husband, who was working full time, because, you know, when I started racing, I was a student and I I so nearly stopped in my very first year of domestic racing. I so nearly stopped because I was a student and I was completely financially crippled. And it was pretty much the last race that I was I could afford when I got picked up by a, a small domestic team who were going to pay my entries and help me with fuel costs to races. And, you know, simple things like even getting started as far back as 2015 you know, I nearly stopped because of the financial aspect of it. And okay, that's that's still different. We still have financial financial complications at domestic level, but still, you know, 
even when I got to the professional level, I couldn't afford massage. I couldn't afford any of those things. And these riders just, they just don't have those barriers anymore. They can afford massage. They can afford sports psychologists. They can, you know, feed themselves properly. They don't have to worry about going on training camps and all of these things. And it is just, it's really amazing. And it was, it was just so enlightening to me. I mean, of course I know about the salaries in women's cycling, but it was just really enlightening to be like, wow, you in your whole career, you are never, ever going to have to worry about that. And that is incredible. Rachel, are there some, are there some monumental developments that, that you've been pretty excited by? Because, I mean, you've also looked at the sport from a management perspective. So you, you have a, a very, very massive view of the sport. I think other than, you know, there's, there's the obvious ones, like the Tour de France Femmes last year and the La Course, you know, the first edition of that. Was that fourteen? I don't know. All the all the years kind of seem to merge a bit. So it's, I think, yeah. With, with the exception of those, you know, those specifics, it feels to me more like a. Um, I don't know the wave is the right is really the right kind of analogy, but it, it's there isn't one specific thing. It's more, I guess, more realizations at points that you know you can, like now you can look at the. GCN app and scroll through and it's like wow there's a women's race on there's a women's race on there's a women's race on you know whereas a few years ago it was like oh I wonder I wonder you know wonder how like like we talked about earlier I wonder how I find out the results wonder how many women's races we yeah. get to see this year two or three you know you yeah. to count on yeah. one hand yeah so now it just to be the the norm that most of the of the you know big women's races are are shown on a global platform but I think it's more the realization you kind of sit back and look at it and it's like oh yeah wow we're in we're in this point now and I don't know that there was a specific time where you know it didn't go from like no women's races to all the women's races but it has been a pretty quick rise of like you know no women's races a few most of them almost all of them um you know so over a relatively short period of time that's you know that's grown but I can't think of a specific kind of like step of uh, you know other than like the course and and the Tour de France Femmes that no no other specific like this is you know oh now we've made this step there's definitely been kind of key moments that have really stood out and I think the first the first women's Paris-Roubaix was one of those key moments and what was amazing was seeing the appetite online for women's racing and I'd never seen anything like that before and when when we had the first women's tour de France last year I keep saying the first women's tour de France we all know it's not the first women's tour de France but of course you know what I mean first and new generation and yeah with that first women's Paris-Roubaix it was just I'd never seen anything like it online in terms of appetite for women's sport there was just you know there were so many stories out there people just couldn't get enough of it and it just it just made me realize, you know, if you create the hype, if you create these stories and you put it out there and you build it, people will come. But you have to do all of those things. You have to create the hype like we always do for the men's races. And Paris-Roubaix, of course, is one of those races that, you know, it has its own hype. It doesn't need building. It doesn't need creating. It's already there. And we just needed to give the women a platform. And so that was a moment where pre-Tour de France, we pre-Tour de France fam, we we realized, okay, this appetite is there. We just need to give them a we need to give these women a platform. So then what's been driving this? I mean, you've mentioned the hype is one of the big things that's that's leading this driving this appetite, but 
where does this hype come from? How is it coming about now? Why is this happening now as opposed to five years from now in the future or in the past? Because the sport is bloody good. (laughs) You know, it's a really, really good sport to watch. Like if you've seen women cycling, you know how great it is. You know how exciting it is. Every single woman, especially of the kind of older generation has a story like a war story about how they got into women's cycling because it was not easy it was so hard you know so many of us have previous degrees you know we've done so many other things in our life before because we had to we couldn't just walk into women's cycling so we all have a story about how we got there and how much we wanted it and we all really really want it otherwise you just wouldn't do it you you know go and be a doctor and get paid properly or go and stay as an engineer and get paid properly and not have all these financial concerns But yeah, I mean, as soon as you see the sport, you see how exciting it is. And, you know, it develops its own hype. And of course, races like Paris-Roubaix and the Tour de France, they, you know, have their own internal hype as well. And then, you know, once you combine the excitement of women's sport with the excitement of that particular race, it's just, you know, it's a recipe for success. So you feel like there's the increased media support and increased media attention on women's racing is one of the key factors? The visibility of the sport is incredibly important. You know, if you can't, if you have a very exciting race in a woodland, but nobody sees it, did the very exciting race ever happen? No. So you need to be able to see this race. And with the increase in visibility of the sport, with the increase in accessibility of the sport, comes the increase in in people wanting to view it and talking about it. And, you know, the the next step really is getting things like the Tour de France on free to view platforms, you know, free to view TV rather than just, you know, GCN is amazing. And, you know, the, the platform they give our sport is brilliant, but you still have to be invested in cycling in some way to be able to to watch most of those things. Of course, some of them are on Eurosport, but even then you still have to be invested in sports specifically. Once we get our sport onto terrestrial channels where people can just turn on the TV and watch it, that's a whole nother ball game and opens it up to a whole new audience of people who weren't even cycling fans before because we need we need the people who weren't just already women cycling fans we need everybody else we need to convert those and show them how great our sport is and once they see how great and how exciting it is then they become invested in it and you know it's just a it's just snowballs then at that point I think as well, I mean, following on from what Lizzie's saying and to, to kind of back up and reiterate that, it's like all sport is, it's a business. And so, you know, the investors in it, the sponsors are looking for the return on their investment. And so the more that women's cycling is visible, the more there is potential for return on that investment. And, you know, like like Lizzie said, it you know, there could be a fantastic, amazing, amazing race, but it doesn't provide any return on investment for anybody if nobody gets to see it so nobody's going to put money into advertising in a you know a race or a sport in general that that doesn't get seen by anybody because it's bad business so the more that the the women's women's cycling is visible and the more people it gets to the more eyes it gets on it the more it becomes a you know a, a viable and good business um good business option to invest in it and then the more money get that gets put in from sponsorship so it becomes a, a self-perpetuating thing. The the more it gets seen, the more people want to see it, the more people want to see it. Yeah, exactly. And we've definitely seen we've definitely seen that in the last couple of years, you know, tremendous rate of progress as well. Beautiful. Well, I think that's a that's a nice place to wrap up. Lots of hope and optimism and and excitement there. 
So I thank you, Lizzie, and I thank you, Rachel, for joining us and sharing your thoughts and your your perspectives and experiences. Thank you. Thanks very much. You just listened to the Explore podcast from EF Pro Cycling. My name is Catherine Ezra. This show was produced by Johannes Manson, Angus Morton, and Matthew Bowden. Editing by Ben Crannell. Music is by Builders T. A special thank you to Lizzie Banks and Rachel Hederman. We'll be back for more soon with more stories from the road. Thank you for listening. 